Hi, this is Mike. Thank you for being a part of what God's doing at the Heights Fellowship. We hope you enjoy this message. We know it's not the same thing as being here in person, but we pray that God would move as you listen and as God applies this to your heart. George Santillana, um, raised in Spain or born in Spain, raised in America, educated in America, who coined the phrase that we know really well. It goes something like this: that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's very true. Jude is writing to a group of people who had a problem. Now we have the benefit of reading that a couple of thousand years later and say, "Okay, we want to make sure we don't repeat what he was dealing with." in his letter to Jude, he was writing to a church that really was infiltrated and, and infested, if you wanted to say that, uh, just really immersed in a group of influencers who presented themselves as believers, but were patently unchristian in their source and in their core, and he was writing to address that. You'll remember he originally was writing another letter, and he had to change a plan. There was, there, he said, listen, I was going to write you a letter about salvation, but the Holy Spirit got hold of me and I had to write something different. And he calls them to an action. Here's what he says. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. He said, listen, God gave you something. He gave you something very special, something very unique. And, and there are those who come along who want to change that or alter that or add to that or take away from that. And he said, so there is an action. The action is that these people have crept in unnoticed. They, they were sneaky. They presented themselves. They look like legitimate believers. He said, but they're not. He said, they were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. Ungodly people who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, they have departed from the truth. And he gave three examples of that. He gave Old Testament Israel, the first generation who came out of Egypt who turned on God. He gave the apostate angels who had been who had sided with Satan and rebelled against God and were kicked out of heaven. He gave Sodom and Gomorrah as another example of people who had departed from the truth. And last week he began to define the problem. He says, these men by dreaming, and I told you that word dreaming literally means by some sort of outside revelation other than the scriptures. They defile the flesh, reject authority, revile angelic majesties. And he brought up the illustration of Michael the archangel in, a, in something that's not recorded in the scripture, until now at least, that Michael and Satan battled for the body of Moses. And Michael didn't have a whole lot to do or say. He just simply said, the Lord rebuke you, and that ended the argument. Because God is that much more powerful than any angel that he 
created. And he said, but these men revile things they don't understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. He begins this scathing indictment of these people who were falsely influencing the church. He, he said, listen, what they do is founded in rebellion. What they do is fueled by their arrogance. They think they know more. They think they have a, a different truth that you need to, to come alongside of. He said, it's all fixed in an ignorance of God. And he doesn't use that as an insult. He says, listen, they just don't know the Lord is what he's saying. And so this week he begins to describe the problem. And he starts with the word woe, which is a really interesting word. It's not just a byline and some rocks on whoa, 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 whoa kind of thing. It, it literally is an exclamation of grief. It's a word for impending trouble. Jesus used it, for instance, eight times in Matthew 23 to talk about false religion or to talk about some kind of spiritual fraud. And, and up on the screen, it actually says it's the opposite of the word blessed. Jesus talked about blessed are, you know, the pure in heart, and blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are the meek and the beatitudes. Well, this is the polar opposite of blessed. It's woe. For instance, in Matthew 23, Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you shut off the kingdom. And not only for men, but you don't even go in yourself. He said, you devour widows' houses. And he says, which is more important, gold or the temple that, that it's blessed by. He said, you scribes and Pharisees, woe to you because you travel about across the sea and land to make a convert or a proselyte and you make him twice as bad as you, as you are. And woe to you blind guides, he says, who swear by the temple and whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. He said, it's all just religious activity for you. And he goes on and on and on. Eight times he uses it. Jude picks up that same thing. And so he describes three things. First of all, he talks about the nature of the error. What is the error? He says, basically, there, it, by the way, if you read the letter of Jude, you'll notice really quickly, he likes triads. He likes triplets. He likes threes. He, it's like he went to homiletics class and he learned to do a perfect three-point sermon and everything is, is in threes. He sees threes and threes and threes, except for one thing he's going to use five of today. But he, he talks about he said, listen, there, there are three things that really describe the nature of the air. He said, they, they are, they've gone the way of Cain. He said, they, for pay, have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. So, so what does that mean? What, what is he talking about? They are camouflaged in their hate, in their resentment, like Cain. You say, what is that? Well, Cain's a fairly familiar story. Maybe you know it comes out of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, the first offspring from Adam and Eve were Cain and Abel, two brothers. And it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering for the Lord of the fruit of the ground. He was farmer, and he harvested his crop, and he brought an offering of that to the Lord. And Abel, on his part, who was also a tender of the herds, by the way, he was a rancher, he brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Stop right there. The question is, why? That's patently unfair of God, isn't it? Why would God reject Cain's offering? Here's what I believe. 
I believe in that first generation from creation, God had told them, listen, this is how we're going to do worship. This is how we're going to provide a sacrifice. I specifically, my opinion, think this was the sacrifice of the atonement. And it had to be a blood sacrifice because blood is the only way you cover sin. You read that all the way into the New Testament. That's why Jesus had to to be slaughtered on the cross. That's why the blood of Christ had to cover. Well, Abel brings a blood sacrifice. Cain doesn't. And you say, well, it was harder for Cain. I mean, Abel just brought from his flock. I get it. But just because Cain had to take an extra step doesn't exonerate him of his responsibility. He he needed to bring a blood sacrifice. He needed to make a payment or trade or whatever with his brother to get something to sacrifice as well. Well, the Lord disregarded Cain's offering. He regarded Abel's offering. Look at the result. And Cain became angry, very angry. And his countenance fell. It affected even his appearance. He was so angry. You've seen somebody who gets so mad, man, it just affects the way they stand and walk and talk and the whole thing. And so the Lord says to Cain, notice the relationship here. Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Listen, don't let this get on you. Your countenance can be lifted up if you'll do well, but if you don't, sin is waiting at your door. Well, Cain doesn't deal with it well. So he lures his brother out into the field with him, and he kills him. And Cain then becomes a picture of the rebellion, of the hatred of these people that have invested themselves into the life of the church Jude is writing to, or the church in general, if he's writing to the church in general. It it indicates his disregard for what is true worship. And because of that, God had disregarded, you remember, Cain. Now, one commentator I read says this, Cain was religious, but he was disobedient. That describes these guys. And it, it prompts me to ask the question of it from us. Is a sacrifice that isn't really a sacrifice truly a sacrifice of worship? And I would say no. And Cain, because of his selfishness, because he was self-centered, because he had a God problem, became a murderer. Jude says... That's what these guys have done. He represents a hatred or a resentment, if you want to use that word, toward God and God's sovereignty and God's ability to say, listen, this is the way I want worship done. This is how I receive worship. You you can't self-style it however you want to. There is a way that we do these things. Jesus would say this later on. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and, he said, money or mammon, but you could pretty much plug in anything you want to right there. These guys represented that mentality. I'm going to do this my way, and God better accept it. God doesn't have to accept it. So the way of Cain is simply this. It's a self-centered, self-styled love that while it appears religious on the outside is literally rebellious and jealous and angry and hateful. He said, they have gone the way of Cain. We know that story. This story, some of you guys may say, oh, yeah, 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 I've heard that. Some of you guys are going, man, I don't even know what he's talking about. He says, secondly, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. This story goes back to the Exodus, goes back to the book of Numbers in your Bible, if you want to look Back there, about Numbers chapter 22 is where it all starts. 
Balaam was a prophet. Now, we're going to call him a prophet for hire because he kind of sold out his prophecy to the highest bidder, to the people that could pay him the most money. That's why it says for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. And it's not just talking about professional ministry. It's not just talking about pastors and teachers who get paid to do that. It can mean other things as we're going to see. But here's the story. During the Exodus, children of Israel, all three million of them, are going through the land. They come to the area of Moab, and the king of Moab is terrified and terrorized by them. And he's thinking, we got to do something. And so what better can I do than to get their God to curse them? That will rally my people and we can go defeat them. That's the thought. So Balak contacts Balaam. And he says, listen, I'm going to pay you to come and curse Israel. So Balaam entertains this, but God appears to him and says, don't you do it. Don't you do it. You can think about it, but don't you do it. And so Balaam wouldn't pronounce a curse on Israel. But he really wanted the money. And he's trying to do what these guys in Jude's letter do. We've talked about this. They try to figure out a workaround. How can we work around this? Well, Balak, this king, is so mad he fires Balaam. And Balaam's like, man, i gotta, I got to figure out some way around this. Balak's anger burned against Balaam and said he struck his hands together in anger. And he said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies and you persisted in blessing them. Because he wouldn't curse them. And, and so Balaam's trying to figure out, what can I do? What can I do? What he does, he figures out, you know what? I don't have to curse Israel. Why don't I get them to curse themselves? Why don't I entice them? Why don't I, I somehow get them to do it themselves? Well, that's what these guys do. They, they just entice you to do something that maybe you didn't normally think that you would do. His workaround is simply this. He says to Balak, apparently, and this is off the record because it's not recorded in Scripture, although Scripture references. Balaam approaches Balak and says, I've got an idea. Listen, you know anything about the Israelite men? They like the ladies. So dress up some of your girls, trot them out in front of them, and see what happens. Just let nature take its course, because they'll do it, man. I'm telling you, they'll do it. That's exactly what happened. It says in Numbers 25 that while Israel was staying in Shittim, that is a place that's a big grove of acacia plant, of acacia trees. And the Israel was camped there that the men of Israel began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to God. Here's the way it works. Hey, boys, why don't you come to church with us? It's going to be fun. It's not like your church. This is a cool church because we get to feast, we get to party, we get to have a good time. And if you know anything about the worship of Baal, there was a lot of sexual immorality involved. And guys, that's just the way we do church. It's awesome. They buy into it. They ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. And they yoked themselves, the Bible says, to the Baal of Peor. That's just the Baal at this location. And the Lord's anger burned against them. Later on in Numbers chapter 31, as God is talking to Moses about how to deal with this. 
He says, these are the very ones, talking about these men, who followed Balaam's advice. He, God is very clear about where the source came from. And caused the people of Israel to rebel against the Lord at Mount Peor. And these are the ones who caused the plague to strike the Lord's people. Many in Israel died because of this. Many of them were destroyed because of this. Incidentally, God also eventually killed Balaam for the same thing. Balaam represents this then. He represents the lust and the greed of these guys who were influencing in the church Jude was writing to. And I told you, it wasn't all about them getting paid. The, the pay could be something as simple as financial gain, obviously. It could be something like they were trying to get a following. I mean, our church is cooler than your church, so come to our church. Come to our theology. They, they're trying to grow their following. Maybe it's just power and prestige within the church. Or maybe they're just trying to teach a different theology, a different uh, enlightened path. Listen, we have, God didn't say not to do all of this. He said certain things. And so they entice you that way. By the way, this persists. Because in Revelation 2, 14, the Lord wrote to the church in Pergamum. This was after the time of Jesus. He says, I have a few things against you guys. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food and sacrificed idols. They followed a different religion, followed a different theology. They went to a different church. And Jude says, be careful. These guys will entice you to do something. So he's already accused them of going after going into licentiousness, which basically says what you want to do, go ahead and do, because grace is going to cover that. And then he says, not only that, they perished in the rebellion of Korah. You go, what's that one? It's another reference back to the Old Testament during the time of the Exodus, by the way. Korah, if you don't know, was Moses' cousin. I don't know how far removed they were as cousins, but he was also a Levite. Moses was a Levite. Now, what that means is this. The family of Levi was singled out by God specifically to deal. They were given charge and control over the worship that Israel performed. Their job was to provide that, to protect that, as I say in the slide, to, to tend that. Moses is a Levite. Aaron, his brother, is a Levite. And they're the leaders. But Korah is also a Levite. And see if this doesn't sound like some churches maybe you've been around. God says in Numbers chapter 1, he says, you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony. Remember, the tabernacle was that tent church that they built in the wilderness that was the center of their worship. And over all of its furnishings and all the things that belong to it, and they shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and they shall camp around the tabernacle, and when it is Time to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle, when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up, and, and nobody else but the Levites is in charge of this. So the Levites had a pretty important job in Israel, if you know anything about that. Specifically, the family of Korah was given responsibility for the most important, sensitive, delicate part of that worship, because they're the ones who carried the Ark of the Covenant. 
They're the ones who carried all the implements in the holy place and in the holy of holies. The most holy articles of that worship were entrusted to Korah's family. They had an important job to do. Numbers 3.31 says that they, their duties involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils. They were to minister and take care of all of those things. Well, Korah looks around and says, well, we've been entrusted with the most important part of that. Why can't we be the priests like Aaron and his family? He basically wanted the power. And he said, it's not fair of God to not let us do that. And so Korah rejected the sovereignty and the authority of God that he had given to Moses and Aaron. And he incited a bunch of others At least 250 people, we're about to read, it was closer to 15,000 people. And they basically tried to take over. It says in Numbers chapter 16, And Korah and the sons of Izhar, the sons of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took action. They rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. And they basically said, nuh-uh, we're taking over. You're not a good leader. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, you've gone far enough. You pushed it too far, for all the congregation are holy, not just you. Does this sound like maybe some churches you've been in? It sounds like a couple of churches I've served at. People come in and try to take over. I have a really good friend who's dealing with that in his church right now. It's very frustrating. For all the congregation of holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves? What's so special about you? Here's the deal. There's nothing special about Moses. Moses was a murderer. Aaron was the one who gave in and said, yeah, yeah, let's just create an idol. There's nothing special or super spiritual about them. It's like there's nothing special about me. Nothing special about any pastor for that matter, except that God has said, okay, you're going to lead. You have a responsibility to me to lead well. And that's what he had said to Moses and Aaron. He says, they said, why do you exalt yourself in the assembly of the Lord? It says, when Moses heard it, he did what all of us do. He fell on his face before God. He was torn up. He was literally affected deeply by this and and begins to let the Lord deal with it. And the Lord did. The Lord abruptly ended Korah's mutiny. It says in chapter 16, verse 32, and the Lord opened, excuse me, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed these men along with their household and their followers who were standing with them and everything that they owned. So they went down alive into the grave along with Their belongings and the earth closed over them and they vanished forever from among the people of Israel. God has a pretty strong opinion of how that needs to be dealt with. Now, I've served in some churches that I wish the Lord would reenact that. I'm just saying. This isn't one of them, but I have served in a couple of those churches like that. That would sure be easier, wouldn't it? The Lord is very serious about that. And these guys, Jude says, listen, they had that same rebelliousness about them. And by the way, it didn't end there. I told you, it said 250, but there were actually thousands more who were sympathetic toward them the next day. The Israelite community, rather than learning that lesson, 
come back to Moses and Aaron, and they grumbled against him. They said, you killed the Lord's people. This is your doing. Bunch of our leaders and their families, this is all your fault. And when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, toward the tabernacle, the cloud, the Lord's presence, covered it. The glory of the Lord covered it. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, or says to Moses, who then says to Aaron, take your censer, take a pail, put incense in it, along with burning coals from the altar, and hurry out among them, because a bunch of them are about to die. A plague has started among them. And so Aaron did as Moses had said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, and a plague had already started among the people. We don't know what it was. It doesn't tell us what it was, but they were dying quickly. And Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them and stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped, and 14,700 people died from the plague, in addition to those who had died because of course. So 15,000 people, because this one man had an attitude. It's destructive. These people were destroyed because of it. He stands for this rebellious posture among these influencers who have no submission to God. Listen, we're just as good as you. No submission toward leadership within God's church, and they attempt to become a law unto themselves. And Jude says, watch out for that. Here's the problem. They always, 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 in every church I've ever seen this in, they draw others in with them, and it ultimately leads, obviously, to a great destruction. So that's the nature of their error. That, that's kind of what it does. And then he begins to describe their activity. The nature of the activity, he says, these men are like hidden reefs in your love feast. They, they without fear, care only for themselves. They are clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, like wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom black darkness has been reserved forever. So he describes five kind of natural phenomena, if you want to call them that. He describes reefs, clouds, trees, waves, and stars. He says this is what their activity is. This is their effect. And so you say, well, what are hidden reefs? And if you're looking in your Bibles, let me clear something up. Depending on what translation you're reading or what paraphrase you're reading, some of them will say hidden reefs, others will say blemishes or blots or spots. Or I, I love the, the Living Bibles assessment. He calls them, they're evil smears. And, and, and so you say, well, well, which is it? What is it? Because there's a big difference between a spot and a, a reef. Well, Jude says reefs. Peter, and I told you a couple of weeks ago, Peter has a parallel account of this, and we don't know if Jude used Peter or Peter used Jude. I'm going to say something that I think is funny here in just a minute, and you can kind of see where I lean on this. But the word in Peter's story, Peter's version of this, he uses the Greek word spilos which means spot or blemish or blot. Jude uses a word that's almost the same but a little different. It's spilas, which means like a submerged rock in the sea that a ship hits and wrecks. And it's almost, and this is where I kind of lean toward, I think Jude referenced Peter. I think Jude had read Peter's writing. He goes, heck, they're not just spots, dude. They're like rocks that wreck ships. That's how bad this is. Jude is trying to communicate danger. 
There is danger in this theology. There's danger in this thinking. And like a reef will sink a ship, their theology will cause spiritual wreckage in what they're doing. And he connects it specifically. He says they're like reefs in your love feasts. Here's what he means by that. A love feast, the the feast of agape in the early church was something that they did. You read about it in Acts 2.42 when it talks about that they were meeting in homes and they were following the apostles' teaching and they were praying and they they had all things in common, all of that stuff out of Acts chapter 2. That happened at the love feast. The early church was predominantly made up of slaves. I don't know if you know that. Slaves turned to Christ like nobody's business because they understood more than anybody else what it was to be set free from something. And they were set free from spiritual bondage. They may have stayed slaves for the rest of their lives physically, but in their spirit they had been set free. And they would come to church and maybe the only good meal they got that week was a church potluck that this love feast was. Some people brought a little and some people brought a lot, but they would pool it all together and they would have this tremendous koinonia or fellowship. They would have Bible study or instruction. They would have worship. They would care for one another. And usually they celebrated the Lord's Supper as a part. What Jude is saying is these guys are wrecking your your feast of love because they are selfish and self-centered in this. They destroy your community. They shipwreck the community that you have. Peter would add this. He said, because they revel in their deception as they carouse with you. As they hang out with you, they are just smiling inwardly because they are wrecking what God's trying to do. Jude later on in verse nine, or verse 16 would give them this. He said, they are grumblers. They are fault finders. They are lust chasers. They're arrogance and they're flatterers for gain. And they do it without any fear of accountability, with nothing to stop them. He's saying, be very, very aware of that. By the way, Jude isn't the only one who talks about it. The Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth wrote about this. He said, I can't praise you, for it sounds as more harm and good is being done when you meet together in your love feast. I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and, and I believe it. He said, I know you and I believe it. And of course, there have to be divisions among you who have God's approval so that you can be recognized. That's a very sarcastic comment by Paul's part. Those of you guys who have, you you have more enlightenment, you have more approval from God. You have to do that because this is where you get kind of lifted up is what he's saying. He says, you know, when you meet together, you're not really interested in worship. You're not interested in the Lord's Supper. Some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing, and as a result, some go hungry, and some get drunk. He goes, don't you have homes for that? So he's not complimentary about that at all. It was a problem, and Jude is calling that out. So he says, they're like hidden reefs that wreck your ship, but he also says, you know what? They're like clouds without water. Man, we in Texas, we in West Texas understand that. The, the area where they lived was very arid like our area. And so when you see a storm cloud come up, you're thinking, oh, rain. I mean, water is life here in West Texas. It's all about water more than anything else. And so if you get rain, that brings refreshing, that brings life, that brings coolness, that brings all kinds of stuff. He said, these guys are like clouds without rain. They just blow by. How many times in the summer months do we look out to the west and the southwest and see the clouds out there, and the next thing you know, they go right around Lubbock. They blow right by. We understand 
they're disappointing. That's what Judas said. He said, these guys are full of promise, but there's no refreshing by what they teach. It's just more dryness. Instead of, instead of prosperity, they bring impoverishment. Instead of freedom, they bring a greater burden. They deliver disappointment. And then he says, and they're like barren trees. They're like autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wow. That's not very complimentary, Jude. Autumn's the season of harvest, right? You get ready to harvest. You go to a tree. You see there's nothing there. After a season of working on it and cultivating and, and watering and tending, you expect to get something out of it. and Instead, you have nothing but disappointment. And he says they're doubly dead. What he says is they're dead at the fruit and they're dead at the root. There's nothing externally to show that they're believers. It's because there's nothing at the root to show that they're believers. He says they are fruitless and they are rootless and so they are doubly dead. What they do is they influence others to some kind of false understanding of God and they have no sense of godly living or godly life within them. Jesus would say this in Matthew 15. He says, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Another sign that these guys aren't believers who lost their salvation. They never were believers to begin with. And then he says they're like wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. You've seen those pictures of a beach after a big storm runs across there? Margie, I remember when you guys were in Destin before the, the hurricane and you sent me pictures of what it looked like before and what it looked like after. You see the, the noise and the commotion from the storm comes in as all this impressive deal. And when it's left over, there's just all this refuse just left out on the beach. Jude says these guys defile everything they touch. They just foam up their shame like nothing you've ever seen. Isaiah would say this about them. He would say, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. He says, look at the result. Look at what you're seeing there and avoid it. And the last thing he says is they're wandering stars. And, and he's not talking about Actual stars or planetary bodies. He's talking about meteors. He's talking about shooting stars. He's talking about in the night sky, you see them flash across, and you're like, whoo, that's impressive. But then it's gone. He says, listen, they, they disappear. They don't last. They're not a true source of light. They're not a consistent source of light, and so they're not going to last. And he says, by contrast, the darkness of hell is reserved for them. It's a pretty scathing indictment. That he's brought. He goes on to say, listen, all the way back to the time of Enoch. If you don't know who Enoch is, it goes all the way back to, to uh, Genesis chapter 5. Seven generations from creation. All the way back there, Enoch prophesied about this theology. And he says, the Lord is going to come. The Lord is going to judge. And he is going to reserve those guys for hell. There is no forgiveness for them if they will not turn to him and turn away from what they're doing. So we come kind of, I'm kind of at the end of my time, but let me just kind of get you to the end here. So there we go. So what do we get, what do we take away from this? First of all, know this, that God is very aware. In other words, God is intimately acquainted with who we are, with what we are, what we say, what we do. 
Okay, just be aware of that. And we are charged as believers with being aware of what is being said and taught in our families and in our churches and in our spiritual circles. That's why we are to contend for the faith. Jude tells us that God's judgment is certain on those false theologies. It's just as certain, the judgment of God is just as certain as God's love and God's grace. And so the invitation to them, the invitation to us is the same. Trust God rather than to rebel against God. I don't know if you've had a time where you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've done what Graham did that we got to witness the, the outward expression of that today. That, that he's done what Emerson told me he had done as I'm walking up to the stage this morning. If you've trusted Christ, listen friend, don't rely on religion. Okay, it's all about relationship. You trust Christ. You turn away from trying to save yourself. That's what the Bible means by turning away from sin. You turn away from trying to save yourself, do it on your own, add God to something you're already doing, and you trust Christ alone. His death, his burial, his resurrection is the only way of salvation. God will forgive you. God will establish that relationship with you. You'll have a guarantee of an eternity in heaven. Your guilt will be taken away. Man, I can't think of a better day to do that than now. Maybe you haven't done that. This is the time to do that. So I'm going to pray over you. You have a conversation with God. We're not going to ask you to come forward. We're not going to ask you to talk to me or anybody else. We're going to ask you to talk to God right where you are. And you let the Lord work, all right? If you're a believer, man, just hear Jude's encouragement to guys contend earnestly for the faith. Be aware of what's being taught around you. Don't fall into that theology. Let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time. Lord, we thank you that you brought these guys through the time change strong and aware and alert and, and pray that through our time and our worship and our observation of the testimony of baptism today, Lord, that, that we would recognize and realize this is all real. That Jesus Christ is not just about a religion, that Jesus Christ is distinctly about a relationship. And Lord, if there be one here, one who is watching online who has never trusted you as Savior, that he or she would choose this day to be the day they say, okay, I turn away from all of that and I turn to Christ and Christ alone. I believe he died for my sin. I, I believe that he rose from the grave and will give me eternal life and I'm investing my life there. So God, save me, take away my sin and give me your forgiveness. Father, for the believer in the room that we would be encouraged by what it means to contend earnestly for the faith. We thank you for your love. Pray, Lord, that you would move among us, strengthen us, Give us your wisdom discernment this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for being a part of what God's doing here at the Heights Fellowship. If the Lord led you to make a decision or you have a question or a need, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at the email listed below, info at theheightsfellowship.org. And we will join you in praying as you take a step forward on your journey with God.